0: We're studying the book of Mark, uh, this is our third sermon in that series. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. We've seen a couple of themes that have repeated themselves thus far in the book. We've seen this theme of, of the wilderness and this theme of water. Uh, John the Baptist calls people to come out to the wilderness where they would acknowledge their own sin and repent and where they might be made spiritually clean, but it's not them who does the cleansing. It's God who would do the cleansing. And then you'll recall last week, the Lord God sent Jesus out to be baptized by John, not to show us, hey, that's a good example of baptism, but really so that Jesus could walk down into the waters of God's judgment and then come out on the other side of that judgment and then walk again into the wilderness where he's tempted, also that he would be a faithful son to the heavenly father, unlike Adam, unlike the nation of Israel, unlike you, unlike me. And so here we come to our third sermon. Mark says, here's God's faithful son, Jesus. He's a king who frees and saves his servants. And so we'll pick up in Mark chapter 1. We'll read verses 14 through 20. And as we turn there, I'll just remind you that this is not um, Mark's reflections or any person's reflections about God. It's actually God's word to his people. So Mark 1, beginning at verse 14. Now, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. And now as we bring our attention to it, we ask that your spirit would quiet our hearts and our minds, remove distractions. But most of all, give us ears to hear what you would say to your people. And I ask uh, again, as I always do, that you would use an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick like me to point to Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. You and I were actually designed, we were built by God to live under his reign. And yet when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, they were were in a sense trying to take the crown that belongs to the Lord and place it on their own heads. Saint Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa in the 4th and 5th century, says that sin causes us to turn inward upon ourselves. And here's what he means. Everybody wants happiness But we seek it outside of the things that can actually bring true happiness. We were meant to serve the Almighty, not to serve the Almighty self. In fact, what happens is we begin to crumble under the weight of God's crown when we try to put it on our own heads. That's why you've experienced this, I know. Those who are the most self-absorbed, the most self-centered, are often the very people who are the most miserable. And here's why. Because the more you try to rule and reign over your own life, your own circumstances, the more you put yourself above other people, the more miserable you get. Think about it. How happy do you really feel when you get into your own head? How am I feeling? Am I getting what I think I deserve? I wonder what people think of me. Am I being treated well? Am I being excluded? Am I proving myself? Am I succeeding or failing? Do I feel attractive or strong? The Bible says there's nothing more spiritually or psychologically or socially more destructive than self-centeredness, than being self-absorbed. It naturally kills your relationship with God, of course, but it also kills your relationships with everyone else. Because it's basically like you've taken God's crown and you put it on your own head and then you're upset that the rest of the world didn't learn to acknowledge your reign. And so here it is. Apart from God's grace, self-centeredness really is the trend of your heart and mind. Why would I open a sermon like this? Because Mark opens his gospel pointing to God's kingdom, and pointing us to Jesus who is wearing the crown. And Mark would have you see that the crown is on Jesus' head. In fact, all of this, this world into which he enters, is his territory. It's his land. It's his space. We haven't heard Jesus' voice yet. Suddenly, you come to verse 15, and we hear his voice, and the very first thing that he says is repent, believe the gospel, come, follow me. And so the passage before us says that God made you to lay down your crown. We'll see three main points this morning, one message, one summons, and then two examples. We'll start with one message. We don't actually know how much time passed between the baptism that Jesus took, his time in the wilderness, and then when we pick up at verse 14, when John had been arrested. Some scholars think it could be as long as a year. So if, you're, uh, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, you remember there's this event that happens at a wedding in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2, and Jesus' mother wants him to fix the problem of there's not enough wine, and it's running out, and Jesus says, it's not my time yet. Jesus is actually keenly aware of the issue of of timing. And so he's not only trying to match this up in a way that John's ministry decreases even as his ministry increases, but more than that, Jesus is also well aware that in three years he must be sacrificed as God's true Passover lamb at the third Passover in his ministry. It's all deliberate. He's got to have this happen at that time point. So pick up at verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. Now we've been saying that this word gospel was not originally a Christian word. We use it sort of like it's jargon in our world, but it was not that at first. This is really a common word in circulation among ancient people in Greco-Roman world. I've got two historical examples. I always borrow historical examples from people who know history better than me, but this, this word gospel, this word euangelion, was used in one context. Archaeologists and historians have found an inscription that starts with this, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus, and then is told the birth and coronation and, and all the things that Caesar Augustus accomplished. Why? Well, because Caesar Augustus wanted to make sure that everybody knew that when I came to power, that's when everything changed in world history. The term was also used as it pertains to military victories. The Persian Empire invaded the Greek Empire in 480 B.C. And when that happened, thousands of Greek people became enslaved to the Persian Empire. There's two major battles that take place that kind of kick back against that. One is a battle at Salamis on the sea. And the other is the Battle of Marathon that you may have heard of. And after the Greeks won those strategic battles, they sent heralds. They sent evangelists who would run and proclaim the good news. They went to proclaim the gospel to Athens and Sparta and other places. What were they saying? Hey, we've won the war, and you're no longer slaves, and you're free. In other words, by this event, by this military victory, everything in your life from here forward will be different. And so you see, if that's the way it's used, why Christians would harvest that word and go, this is perfect. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, God has done something that changes everything. It's good news. And it's going to change your status forever, which is probably why Mark began his gospel this way. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. That's actually the message Jesus came to preach. In the same way, when he says the time is fulfilled, the Jews who heard that message would have said, oh, the time is fulfilled. He's, he's pointing us back to Isaiah chapter 9, where the people who were walking in darkness have now seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shined. And so they would have heard that and said, oh, Jesus is talking about this fulfillment. The time has come. Now's the chance to embrace this work of, of God on your behalf. And then for those who would take the opportunity, it really is a moment such that nothing would ever be the same after this. Here's freedom for chains, freedom from chains from people who really were captives. One pastor points out that this is actually the crux of the difference between Christianity and every other religion. And that is that the gospel presents you with actual good news Whereas the essence of other religions is really advice or instruction. It's not just other religions, of course. Even the supposedly non-religious kind of instruction that you get out in the world can be boiled down to this. Here's what you need to do. Whereas the gospel says, this is what's already been done. This is what you must accomplish. Verse, this is what's already been accomplished on your behalf. This is how you need to live in order to, to improve your circumstances or your lot in life versus this is how Jesus did, lived. Moreover, this is how Jesus died, that you might be saved. You see, Christianity is completely different. Back when I, before I went to seminary, before I decided to pursue the work of ministry, my boss, who was in the insurance industry, Handed me a book right after we'd had our first child It was a book about how to build financial wealth And uh, so my boss gave it to me He said you should read the whole thing But specifically you should read the part about how to send your kids to college It's got a great plan in it Brand new dad I thought man this is helpful, pertinent So I read it with great exuberance So here's the crux of the plan How to send your kids to college is basically this Uh, All you have to do is purchase a house uh, in the college town where you think your kids are gonna go, as close to campus as you can possibly get it. Make sure you have lots of bedrooms so you can get rent, and you just rent that house out until your kids get to college. Then when it comes time for your kids to go to college, they can't go anywhere else. They have to go to that school, and you tell your kids to take out student loans. Loans, all of which can be deferred until they get out of school. And then after everybody's out of college, then you simply take the house, which we presume has appreciated exponentially because of the great market in a college town. But you've also had renters pay down the mortgage over the course of that time. And then you sell the house for a big profit. But you don't take the profit yourself. You give it to your kids and you let them pay off their student loans. And I thought... Wow, it's really detailed. It's a lot of instruction here. And I felt for just a moment a little bit inspired by it. And then at the end of the day, I realized, well, that's just advice. That's instruction. Here's what you need to do. But here's what you notice. The very best advice in the whole world can never do what the gospel can do. And that is that advice never really takes a burden off of your shoulders. It doesn't relieve you. Advice almost always weighs you down, and you have felt this. Here's three steps on how to be a better husband. Here's five steps to grow in your integrity. Here's seven steps to a healthier you. See how the gospel is different. It's not just different from other religions of the world. It's it's just vastly different from all of the non-religious instruction that humans come up with. Advice can do nothing to lift any burden off your shoulders, whereas the gospel frees you with these joyful tidings. Why? Because everything has changed. If my boss back then was really interested in kind of helping me round out this illustration, he should have given me the house in Auburn. He should have said, here's a four-bedroom house. It's right next to campus. It's got three bathrooms, and here's the keys. So that I wouldn't have been just simply inspired. Well, that's a cool idea. But everything would have changed. You see, that's what the gospel really does. It changes things, not by way of instruction, but by way of fact. And here's the world who sells you advice, who sells instruction in what to do. And here's the gospel, which actually brings good news to you. And that good news changes the trajectory of your entire life. Life. God made you to lay down your crown. We've seen this one message. Now let's look at this one summons. Verse 14, where I picked up before, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is classic Mark. He he summarizes this probably big, beautiful sermon with an economy of, of words. It's not obviously the whole sermon that Jesus preached. It's really a summary of what he said. Now, Mark's first readers who are hearing this and reading it in the church in Rome understood what most of us don't catch at first blush. What is the kingdom of God? And then what does he mean by repent and believe in the gospel? Let's think through this separately. What does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of God is at hand? What Jesus is doing is he's linking it to all of these Old Testament promises of the arrival of God into the presence of his people. But but God doesn't come in those prophecies just simply to make himself known, hey, I'm the Lord, but rather he comes to be known to deal with the issue of alienation that stands between God and men. And so this phrase, kingdom of God, is sort of like a a, a verbal billboard. God has come to do what no human being could ever do. God initiates the act to save us. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I am the decisive moment in all of history that changes everything. I'm actually God's plan of salvation. In me, God comes to you. This is why we began with this concept of a crown. Because when Jesus declares that the kingdom of God is at hand, it's like a trumpet blast which reverberates through the fog of lies that men and women have believed throughout history. God's the king, you're not. And this is no small thing though you thought you were the sovereign over this little tiny space. Jesus comes and he says, no, this all belongs to the Lord. I want you to imagine a small tribe of 40 people who live in a tiny corner of a massive empire. And they might have lived for decades or even centuries unaware that the 100 acres upon which they hunt and fish... They think it's the whole world. But it is, in fact, just a postage stamp on the map of a a global empire. And it's an empire that's ruled by a great king with armies of thousands and people in the millions. It's an empire that's not measured by acres, but by thousands and thousands of miles and millions of people. My point is, when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, he's not simply trying to convey some content. He's delivering a a summons. You thought this was your kingdom. It's not. In fact, it's time to submit to the reign of the king. That's why he says repent and believe in the gospel. I love the way one commentator explained this. He says, only through repentance can a man participate with joy when the kingdom of God breaks forth. In fact, in Jesus, men are confronted by the word and the act of God. So to repent and to believe in the gospel is a summons to actually make a radical decision to do something with the King who has come. It's one of the many reasons you cannot simply stand at a distance from Jesus and say, yeah, I I admire him. He's great. He's a good moral teacher. And then all the while shaping him into the Jesus that you want him to be. So you come to the gospel of Mark and you actually learn, well, we actually have to learn who Jesus really is. And who he is is not often who we make him to be. He doesn't leave you with the option of saying, good man, good teacher, nothing more. It's also the reason that you cannot make Jesus a supporting actor in a play that you think is about you. Jesus says, belief or unbelief will come down to this. Did you submit to the summons of God to embrace me as the king? Or did you choose the whole world... And in choosing the world, you chose a bunch of false promises. Jesus would say, well, you're just simply trying to wear my crown. The summons, since you are not the king, it's time to repent and believe the gospel. That Jesus says he is your king, that he offers salvation and hope to those who are humble, to those who are brokenhearted, to those who are actually willing That's actually the essence of repentance. It's just a relinquishing of self-centeredness. It's a relinquishing of my self-absorbed, unlawful claim to a crown that belongs to Jesus. Now listen, that summons was stark when Jesus said it. It is no less stark today. And so I wonder if there are not areas of your own life where you are right now trying to wear the crown that belongs to Christ. Well, how would you even know if you were doing that? Are you growing more self-absorbed? Are you growing more self-centered? And then if so, in what area? Where do you find yourself resisting the authority of God? Where do you find yourself feeding on evil thoughts? Where do you find yourself embracing ungodly attitudes? Where do you find yourself consumed with what other people think or hiding from what you think they might think? Those are the spots where you need to hear the summons of Christ. He says, the time has come. The kingdom is here. It's time to repent and believe. Not only that I reign but also that you don't, and I'm here, says Jesus, to offer to save you from yourself. God made you to lay down your crown. So Mark summarizes the one message of Christ as one summons to come to Jesus with repentance and faith, and our sermon closes with two examples of what a response of faith looks like. These two examples pick up at verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. A couple of quick comments I want to make about this. This vocation seems so different from what we're familiar with. In the first century, meat is not particularly cheap. And it is not particularly plentiful. But but fish is both affordable and plentiful. Uh, You've probably been told these guys are like country bumpkins. They're not. These are like working class, middle class, small business owners. And the reason I say that is because they really do give up something to follow Jesus Christ. That's what these examples teach us. And that is that everything in the whole world must become subservient to your relationship with the Lord. Another comment. If you grew up around the church and you heard this phrase explained in your childhood, fishers of men, I bet you were like me. You envisioned, hey, that sounds pretty neat. It'll be like reeling in God's people, kind of tossing them into the boat. And in one sense, that's true, but you need to pick up that passage that we read from Jeremiah. In fact, the whole Old Testament is full of this. The image is very ominous because it's a picture of of judgment. How do we know that? Well, ancient people would have looked at oceans and seas as, as a great death, a great abyss from which you could never be rescued. And then more than that, Fish don't actually want to be caught. A hook or a net that reels them in is not what they desire. And so what Jesus is actually saying to them is not something that's cute and campy. He's saying, you're going to be a part of reeling my people out of the depths of judgment of God. I want you to participate in rescuing them from hell. One should also notice, though, that discipleship in Jesus' way of speaking is a, is a progressive, ongoing process. I'll make you become fishers of men. And then the rest of the Gospel of Mark, in fact, all of the other Gospels, is going to chronicle how slow and, and, and deepening this takes place, being changed into the image of who God meant these men to be. One other thing you notice that Jesus goes out to find his disciples. And to the first readers, that would have read as extremely unusual. Because if somebody wanted to study under a particular rabbi, the the person would go to that rabbi and say, Hey, could I study under you? Could I learn from you? Maybe some of you chose to go to a particular school or you've invested in a particular college because you you wanted to to study under those who were respected in their field. A few years ago, when I say that, I mean 20, when I chose to go to seminary, I chose a seminary because I wanted to study under some particular men. One of them was a man named Jack Collins who was a part of, of translating the Old Testament for the English Standard Version of the Bible. So when Crossway Publishing said, we're going to create the English Standard Version, they went to Jack Collins and they said, we would like you to oversee the translation from the Hebrew to English. And then he came along and he wrote a lot of study notes which have been compiled into the Old Testament books of the ESV Study Bible. I wanted to study from a guy like that. And some others like him. Now imagine Jack Collins rolling down to Birmingham, tapping on the 29-year-old's door, who's selling insurance. Hey, Eric, I would like you to come study under me. I'd like to teach you the Old Testament. It didn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way, but why does it happen that way here? Because Jesus wants to make sure that you know that unless God calls you to himself you would never choose to come on your own. Which is why Jesus would later say, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now look at verse 19. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now most scholars think that, that Peter and Andrew are in business together with James and John, and so it's just a little further down the beach. They're mending their nets. Verse 20, immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Uh, As we study the book of Mark, you're going to see that the word immediately is one of Mark's very favorite words. In the case of Simon and Andrew, immediately they left their nets and followed him. In the case of James and John, there they are over there mending their nets. Immediately, Jesus calls them, and they left their father Zebedee, and they left him with servants. What you notice here is that the call to follow Christ means that your vocation, your chosen profession, takes a back seat... But then so do all other family relationships. To modern people like us, to leave my job, to leave my career, to leave my supposed calling, well, to follow Jesus, well, that's really radical. But to ancient people, to people from traditional cultures like this one, it's actually far more stark to leave your dad in the boat and to jump out and follow this man. Zebedee's over there still mending nets, but here's two examples, and both pairs of brothers respond to Christ, and both are are leaving something which is very meaningful. But let me make something very clear: we're going to see Andrew and Simon fishing again. In other words, I don't think this is the last day that these men decided that they would earn a living. Probably they, they give the business off to some other family members and others are helping it make that happen. The Bible also gives us some clues that James and John do not simply leave family forever. In fact, we're going to meet their mother, whose name is Salome, and she sneaks up to Jesus and she bows down at his feet and she says, hey, when you get into your kingdom, would you let my boys sit at your right hand and your left hand? You see... I say all that because it's not as if they really did lose family and lose the ability to make money. And yet the message is this. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, then you may be called to put everything else that you value under the reign of Jesus. Work, career, hobbies, money relationships, even your patterns of sin. Now, the world tells us that we are finding our lives in all of those things, that we're really finding all of our hope in that career and that hobby and that money and those relationships and those sin patterns. But here's the Bible's comfort. Even as you leave all else, you really do find that Jesus was the only one that could ever satisfy you at all. And so though your flesh would grab the world, would grab the possessions, would grab your people and your comfort and your self-centered, self-absorbed way of life, Mark says God made you to lay down your crown. And so, friends, the substance of repent and believe in the gospel is an invitation for you to believe that his reign is better than yours, that you will be most happy and most content and most richly blessed in humble submission to the king. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would send forth your spirit so that it would not return void, but you would accomplish the very things that you desire to accomplish. Oh God, we ask that you would help us to submit to the reign of Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Our closing